Holy Father of Heaven, what a what a indescribable privilege it is to come before you and be gathered before you as those united in your Son by the marvelous work of his grace. And now, Father, privilege to open and read and study and peer into your e- eternal word. And specifically, Father, with this great task, this great burden, this great opportunity to look into the intercession between you and your beloved Son. Father, I pray with all my heart that this does not just reside as a collection of facts, but that it changes us, it transforms us in our in our looking upon Christ, in our understanding him, in our delighting in him, in our treasuring in him, and Father, especially in our imitation of him as we seek communion with you, for we are in daily desperate need of that sweet communion and the receipt of your effective grace. So we ask for your Spirit's power and presence and illuminating work to be at work in and among us, Lord, in this time. Help me, Father, help me in this to explain clearly and to teach rightly your word of truth. We ask all this to the glory of your name and the edification of our souls. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So I don't mean to frighten you or impress you with my words, but this is the context of our study over the next, I think, close to nine weeks. So we're going to be diving into Scripture as as deep as we theologically can by the grace and the Spirit of God. So we're going to be looking at various prayers of Christ, but today is, is an introduction, and, and part of that introduction is we, we really need to understand where we are individually and, and corporately. This, this isn't a measuring stick by any means, but we need to understand where we are in our Christology. What is our Christology? What does that mean? What does Christology mean? Study of Christ, Christ, his life, including his intercession, um, all the aspects, his work especially. And I want to begin with, if you turn to Hebrews 5, 7, because this kind of gives us a basis of where we look at, where we, how we are informing ourselves of where our own Christology is, Hebrews 5, 7. I'm going to start by reading this, but I'm going to be asking a number of you to read Scripture today just for the sake of my voice. <laughs> Hebrews 5, 7, it says of Christ, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. So, is this something, is Christ's prayer life something given to us as only an example of just instructional information for us to, to glean from? Anyone? Are the prayers of Christ in Scripture just merely for our instruction, just as an example that, yeah, you should probably pray too? 
Yes, no. Pardon? He did. He did. And as Brian, his concluding message on, on the imitation of Christ in his prayer, we can say rightly from Scripture, because of what we're going to look at in his Christology in the hypostatic union, he needed to pray. He was fully human. And we're going we're gonna to look at that from his birth and into, briefly, his life today. And we've already asked that question, which I just asked again, did he need to pray? But we also have to ask the question, if Jesus is the God-man, both fully God, fully man, two natures, one person, since he was truly divine, how then does God pray to himself? Were his prayers, again, just an instructional prayer? As exactly, exactly. So what, what I'm doing by this is just to give us all a clear understanding of, of where our Christology is, our understanding of that great mystery of the hypostatic union, which we're going to touch on a little bit more as we go on. But some have even said that Christ even just pretended this intercession, which we know, I know in this group, this body, that's just utter blasphemy. Christ would never pretend something for the sake of an example. It was very real because of his pure, his true humanity. So we know from this first question, from looking briefly initially into his hypostatic union and understanding our Christology, he being the God-man, that in the person of Christ, as he was incarnate, in an incarnate state on the earth, meaning he had flesh and bones, blood, he suffered in the same weaknesses that we experience in life. He grew tired. He got hungry. He had to sleep. Sometimes he slept. Didn't seem like he slept a whole lot, but, but he suffered in the same way that we do, except for sin. There was no sin found in him. One nature fully divine, one nature fully human, in one person. And neither nature was able to sin. And we know this from his conception, which was brought about by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Just like us with body and soul. And, and we know this from Luke twenty three forty six. And Psalm fifty, or excuse me, Psalm thirty-one, five, which Luke Christ quotes in Luke twenty-three, forty-six, that when he says that, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit," we're going to look at that down the road. But this shows that both body and soul were present in his humanity; that he was surrendering the life, his spirit life, to his Father out of his humanity, because his work on the cross was completed. So in the humanity, flesh and blood, body and spirit, body and soul, fully divine, one person. Everybody good there? Everybody, any questions? Any? And I know that's a mystery. I mean, to fully grasp that, I don't know. I mean, we went through uh, Mark Jones's book on, the, on Christ and still trying to grapple with that that fullness of that. We won't know that. I don't even know if we'll know that in eternity, but... We've got to look at this. Yes, brother. Because of his holiness. 
He walked upright. He was perfect in every aspect. His life, his manners, his words, everything about his life from conception to resurrection. He was pious in all he did. Upright, upright standing, giving God honor. So given the reality of Christ's human nature, I think we've looked at some of this, but what would we describe as his limitations of being human? Was he fully omniscient in his humanity? No. We know from Scripture that at times he knew what was in the hearts of man. He understood what they were saying. So there were those brief instances, occurrences, where that was, that was given to him. He didn't experience full omniscience. Obviously, he was kind of, lack of a better term, he was encapsulated in his physical body so he couldn't be everywhere at once, which we'll get into later. That's the reason he sent the Holy Spirit. But considering that even now in his humanity, being he's still human, right? That humanity has not expired. It has not been absorbed by his divine nature or his glorification. That humanity is still present, although rightly glorified in heaven. I don't think, well, John saw the the testimony example of that glorification in Revelation where he saw the, the eyes of fire, the sword coming out of his mouth, his hair is wool. But he is fully glorified in his humanity now in heaven. <clears throat> but it still remains distinct from his divine nature. Since his incarnation, he will forever be in a glorified human state. Okay? So we see that these two natures in one person of Christ also what we can describe that these two natures related, in a sense, in a voluntary way with one another, meaning the divine did not completely engulf the human, and the human did not completely override the divine, making some ethereal presence of flesh, which some of the old early church, quote-unquote, fathers were wrestling over. That's why we have a lot of the Chalcedon um, results in, in discussion of those, those meetings. But with the communications between the divine and human natures being voluntary, this gives us some insight when we look at scriptures like Mark thirteen thirty two, when Christ admits, when he says, but of that day and hour, nobody knows, not even the Son, but the Father. So there was not a complete overtaking of his divine nature, his omniscience in his hypostatic state in his two-nature, one-person state. So we can say from this, please stop me if you have any questions. If I'm running too deep, too fast, you want to go on a rabbit trail, that's fine. So our, our reform position believes that the finite, glorified humanity of Christ was and still is not capable of receiving the fullness of those infinite attributes. His humanity is still his humanity, and it always will be. Okay? Anybody, everybody good with that? So what does all this mean in our study of the theology of Christ's intercessory work? One aspect is that this voluntary relation between these two natures of Christ in one person, it, it protects, in a sense, the integrity of Christ's nature, 
so that his prayers are really those of a man who needs to pray for the sake of his own soul and for the fulfillment of his coming, which is that greater redemptive historical work. If you remember from our our Bible, biblical theology class, if you remember the chart that Pastor Emilio drew about that upward from Eden to glory, this whole redemptive historical work was the whole purpose of Christ, as we know, but also the whole substance of what we're going to see in his intercessory work. It was always with this redemptive purpose in mind, with the ultimate glory to come. We don't read in Scripture that Christ prayed about something over here, and then he prayed about something over here, and something over here. He was always in his prayers with that redemptive forward glory, as we're going to look at in Psalm 2 a little bit, that full gathering of his inheritance. So another way of looking at this, I want to give an example. Nobody shoot me, throw any stones. We're going to look at a paraphrase of the Westminster Confession. (laughs) Just one part of it. Because this gives some additional light in this, because we have to consider his his humanity in his mediatorial work, okay? And I paraphrase this to explain it a little bit better, but it says, in light of Christ's mediatorial work, which is him being encompassing his, his high priestly role, his sacrificial role, and his intercessory role, Christ acts according to both natures, with each nature doing that which is proper to itself. And we we can see this. If somebody would turn to Hebrews 9.14 and somebody else to 1 Peter 3.18. Hebrews 9.14, 1 Peter 3.18. 9.14. So the blood of Christ coming from his being crushed as fully human on the cross who through the work of the eternal spirit. So what I'm saying there is that both natures, each, new, each nature doing what is proper in itself to fulfill his mediatorial work, his body sacrifice. And if you remember where Pastor Emilio was last studying, where we'll continue in, his necessary reliance on the work of the Holy Spirit throughout his life. So the blood of Christ through the body of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offering himself up to God as that sacrifice. First Peter 3. Death in the flesh made alive in the spirit. So the two natures working in in both natures, each doing what is proper in, to itself. So if we understand Christ's mediatorial work is according to both natures in one person, and I, I am going to build from this, I promise you. I just want to make sure we're all in sync here then we can actually understand passages like Acts 20, 28, 
better that speaks of the church being purchased by the blood of God. Some have said, how can God die? Well, God, in in essence, did die. The Son of God did die, and he did shed his blood for the church, for the sake of the church. And by the reason of the unity of the one person of Christ, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person that is seen as dominated by the other. Does that make sense? Let me read that again. That by reason of the unity of the person of Christ, that one, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person dominated by the other nature. Acts 20.28 20, and John 3.13. pages mixed up here sorry and even though it is impossible for the divine nature of christ to suffer or die we agree to that right because his redemptive work is attributed to the whole person his whole person including and requiring the humanity the full humanity of christ thus we can say that the whole christ is God and man because this speaks of the person of Christ. Okay, if you want to, if you're a graphic person like me, here's the person of Christ. Fully human, fully divine, two natures in one person, okay? And all of this... We're, we're building thought here. All of this means that the person of Christ does not actually does not act singularly through his human nature as his instruments, but rather the God-man acts with both natures present in all times. All of Christ's mediatorial work was the work of the God-man. Both natures, one person, always present throughout the work. None was superseding the other work. Both were in simultaneously of course when we look at this as i mentioned earlier we look at the incarnation we look at the work of christ his whole mediatorial work we cannot we do not dare exclude the spirit of god the holy spirit because every act upon christ's human nature was from the holy spirit from eternity past there was decreed from his birth the Spirit of God would be working on him in his humanity. We see that carried out fully at his baptism when his ministry began. But he performed all his miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, in which we're going to see later on in Pastor Emilio's study how, how further that is extended. But even in his intercessory work between him and the Father, that too was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, given this Christological basis, all of this I talked about is hypostatic union. If we, say, if we even dare to say that Jesus did not pray out of necessity, then something is wrong with our Christology. He, he did have a need to pray. If, if you want to dig into that more, um, I'd say go read Burkhoff's Systematic. He has a really good section in there about Christ's intercessory work and his, and his hypostatic union. So if we look at Christ's prayers, which we're going to over the weeks, 
by necessity, we have to look at his intercessory work from within his human, human, human nature in light of his mediatorial redemptive work. Okay? And so in considering the, the progression of our examination as we look at his intercessory work in light of this mediatorial role, then the theological basis we have to consider as we look into the inter- intercessory work of Christ is the full history of redemption. As I said, everything that he was about was on this redemptive plan. Everything that he prayed about was so tightly knit, coupled, woven in this redemptive plan in all of his prayers. And where we see Jesus entering into this new age of prayer, we are also summoned with him to come with him into that and behind him to follow him in his example. Okay? Any questions so far? Comments? Challenges? <laughs> Chris? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's showing its distinctiveness of the two natures, though, being within the one person. That they're always present with him. No, no. There is there is communication. There is there is voluntary involvement. Yeah, I was saying just kind of visualize that pure divinity, pure humanity was there, but true humanity too, sinless humanity. So. His prayers, as I said, were the son of, of the Son of God to the Father in the power of the Spirit. They were uttered to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, working in his human nature. The Spirit was enabling him, guiding him, teaching him in his prayers as the begotten Son of God. And just in a brief application note, thinking about this, that, that Christ's dependency fully upon the Holy Spirit throughout every aspect and moment of his life. If we look at Romans eight twenty six and 27, how should we consider our prayer lives? How important should this be to us? And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Romans eight twenty six twenty seven. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he interceded for the saints according to the will of God. So just as the Spirit of God worked in the humanity of Christ in his time of prayer between that, that special intimate communion between him and the Father, it was all still under the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. How much more in our lives should we seek out and, and ask for the Spirit's help and power in our time of prayer, in our intercession for one another? And he will be present. He is that paraclete. He is that faithful one that will come alongside and be with us to give us those utterances that, are, that, are, that we can't put words to but can bring it to the Father. So over the next several weeks, we're going to look at, Lord willing, in detail of, um, at the theology of Christ's intercession, 
we're going to predominantly be in the Gospel of Luke, but we will go into Matthew, Mark, and John too, I promise. But several reasons which I found were unique in Luke. Um, Luke really captures some specifics of his prayers and really brings out the theological place of his prayers. Um, and, and you begin to see, as I was looking at some of those yesterday, this the, the just the awareness that the reality of that divinely directed work of redemption as Christ is praying in each of these, even in his, what we call the Lord's Prayer, but is actually his instructional prayer in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, you know, what he's looking at beginning with Heavenly Father, our Father, our Father we're going to get into is is just mind-blowing, as I said, he's taking into taking us into this new realm of prayer, this new covenant of prayer. But to start with our Father was was mind-blowing to the Jews to speak in that intimate relational value of the Heavenly Father. But then to look at it from the supremacy of his name being hallowed. And that's where it all begins. I mean, you go back prior to the garden, the, the redemptive covenant that was made in eternity past all for the hallowing of God's name. So we'll get into that. I don't want to jump into too soon. I'd like to, but not right now. Um, so next point we're going to look at is, I've got to get a different marker, the historical symbology. And the nature of Christ's intercessory work. I'm going to paraphrase there for the sake of time. So the history or the symbology of Christ's sacrificial mediatory work that we find in the Scriptures goes back actually to, where do we find that? The testimony, the types and shadows of his historical mediatory, sacrificial work. Where do we originally find that at? Easy answer, folks. (laughs) Yep. And specifically? In, In the symbology in the Old Testament, where do we find the symbology of Christ, his uh, sacrificial, mediatorial work. After that, but yes, we do find it in the, <laughs> the sacrifice. In the tabernacle, right? <clears throat> the symbology found in the sacrifices, in the brazen altar, in the blood being spattered. Sorry if I wasn't clear there. I was, I've been reading a lot, so I was I was ahead of the curve. Sorry, bro, <laughs> and sisters. Hmm? Typology and the symbols found, and I'm going to get into that. Yeah, the typology, the symbolism found used in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, and also later in the temple too. And I'm going to I'm going to go into those here real quick. But we see it in the brazen altar. Symbolism. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah not, not the study of the symbols, but the actual types that, 
that were shown in the sacrifices that were done in the tabernacle and seen in the brazen altar, the mercy seat, and we're going to look at the incense that was burned as well. So we see it in the brazen altar and the sacrifices of the various animals, but we find his intercessory work as described in the daily burning of the incense and the golden altar in the Holy of Holies and before that. So in Luke 16, or excuse me, Leviticus 16, verses 12 and 13, the instructions were that the high priest shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. This, this great cloud of incense that was burning, the, the smoke from the incense being burned that filled the holy place was to be a, a const, constantly rising. It was a, not only a symbol or type of the prayers of Israel, but a very powerful type of the high priestly prayer of the high priest, which is here a type of Christ in everlasting intercession for his people, for the nation, but also for his people, but the high priest praying for the nation of Israel. And to note that this incense could only be burned on living coals that had been taken directly from the altar of the burnt offering. That indicated that the intercession being made was based only on the sacrifices and the blood that had been spilled. Otherwise, if it hadn't been such of these coals from this living from the sacrifices being made and offered up this way, the priest himself would die. This is how serious, how how important, how detailed this was for the tabernacle. And we look and see that from this, we can see Christ's intercessory work while on earth and now continuing for us, because it says he lives to continue making intercession for us, that this intercessory work is based solely on his accomplished sacrificial work. And it's accepted by the Father only on that basis. Him being the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb, the blood that was spilled, and now him offering this, these prayers for the saints before is typed and shadowed by this incense burning that the high priest would bring before God in the Holy of Holies, before the mercy seat. Was that clear? See that? Okay. So the nature of Christ's intercessory work, as we need to remember it in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, and the sacrifices that were made in the tabernacle and later in the temple in Jerusalem, there was, as I said, this daily ongoing ministration at the temple altar, which is then culminated by the burning of this incense. And that, again, is a type or a symbol for us that this never-ceasing ministry of intercession is necessary, was necessary for the high priest, but also is shown and carried out, fulfilled in Christ, now and forevermore. 
And this daily ministration, when it reached its highest point, was on the Day of Atonement. And that's when and only when the high priest would go fully into the veil, fully into the Holy of Holies with the atoning blood, with this this incense sacrifice, this prayers of the saints. We need to consider this and look at this as we look at Christ's intercessory work, but also in examining our own prayer life, whether it, it's lacking due to understanding or, or more fully, it's, it's the necessity of daily ministration, the daily need for prayer before the throne of grace. Because now we are too called a kingdom of priests, according to both Exodus 19.6 and also in 1 Peter 2.9. And this is a good way, this to be an examining manner of our own prayer life. Yes, brother. By the grace of God, they did. Yeah. They look forward to that fulfilled promise that the, the promise of the seed back in Genesis 3.15, talking about to be fulfilled, that seed being Christ, that's by the grace and understanding of God. That's what they were looking forward to. Yeah. Because what covenant were they under? works they had to obey god gave them you do this i will reward you ultimately the ultimate reward being with him in heaven within him with him in glory that was the outcome of their obedience but that all these types and shadows pointed to that seed that would bring the new covenant and there there was grace involved in this new this covenant of works because it is only by the grace of god we are saved but in that covenant of you you obey this, I will reward you. You disobey this, I will punish you. So it, it took the grace of God to realize that this tabernacle symbolizes something. This sacrifice symbolizes something. This daily ministration of prayer and intercession symbolizes something. And as God revealed that to Moses especially, the high priest, and to those that were of that remnant because we know not all Israel was saved. What happened in the wilderness, you know, that remnant was brought into ultimately the kingdom. We'll, we'll meet some of them. We will meet them one day in glory. But Through faith. Always by faith. So, any other thoughts, comments, questions? Look like you're brewing. No. <laughs> okay. Again, Christ's intercessory work is found too in this daily burning of the incense on the golden altar in the Holy of Holies. And I went through that. Okay. Yes. Yes, brother.
Yeah. Yeah. Amen. That's that's a high calling, you know, just just to be transferred now into his kingdom and in his kingdom being a priest that we have access to him. Why would we not want to take advantage of that? You know, in in a, in a pious, humble way, but we have a mighty God on our side. Yeah. Um and and you're going to hear in a little while, God welcomes that. He, he, he wants us to come to him in prayer. He's made it possible. Why wouldn't we? You know, to, to be like Jacob. I'll, I want to come out of prayer limping and weak, and, but no, I wrestle with the Lord, you know. So, yeah, amen. Pri- priestly function. I mean, you, you can glean so much out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy looking at the priestly function, what, what it called us to. We were just reading out of Deuteronomy today about the severity of the punishments of disobedience. That was frightening. And to know we're not under that anymore. But now we have access by the grace of God to live as priests. Not perfect, but to live with that daily reception of his grace. That's that's an amazing thing to think about. But we we, we have that still that westernized mentality that yeah I got this I can take care of this yeah no problem <laughs> what no I don't want to go to that extent but have 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 sister have that symbol in your mind that we are wearing the ephod of Christ going in before the holy of holies I mean you know whew, covered in his blood yeah amen so in, in the nature of Christ's intercessory work, we also have these prophetic utterances and, and witness from the Old Testament. And it was really cool. I, I, I just was amazed digging into this. I pray you will be too. But they show here, giving us glimpses into the eschatological nature of both the intercession and, as we know, the redemptive work of Christ. Turn to Psalm chapter 2 with me. Uh, Brother Landon's not in here with me, but it was a, it was truly several weeks ago. I was I was digging into this, looking for just wrestling with this intercessory work of Christ. Where do we see it prophetically? Where where is it brought forth in His redemptive plan? And Brother texts me this page from a missionary's testimony. And it talks about Psalm 2. And I was just like, thank you, Lord. There it is. So verses 7 and 8. This is, this is a glimpse back into eternity past for us. I'm not going to go into great speculation beyond this. But this is a glimpse into that eternal covenant that was made in eternity past. In verse 7, this perfect loving harmony and relationship of the triune God Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me. He, the Father, said to me, the Son, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. What is that? Is that a prayer? Is that intercessory work? Simplified, yes. Ask of me. And here's the redemptive aspect. I will surely give the nations as your inheritance 
and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Here, the begotten Son of God, identified and, and titled, if you will, where in the triune council this agreement is made that there, in that willing intercession and request by the begotten Son to the Father will in that instance be granted the inheritance from the nations. Already done. Signed, sealed, delivered, ready to go. That's his promise. The very ends of the earth, from all those from every tribe, nation, tongue, with all the diversity that we could fathom in one body. That, that is incredible. That is amazing that he would call us to that. And we're going to see later in Isaiah that he will also take on the office of an intercessor. And with this decree and condition, he embraced Christ himself will, with joy, great joy, be granted the honor and the power of a, of a truly universal monarch. In fact, turn, turn over to Isaiah 53. Someone like to read verse 12. This is what I'm talking about. Isaiah 53:12. Okay. Amen. Here again, redemptive work, tightly fixed, coupled, aligned with Christ's intercessory work. That may be very obvious to a number of you. That just blew me away. I mean, just to see, that was his whole directive. That was his whole focus. Eternity, to have my people with me, to rescue them, ransom them from the sin that's going to corrupt this planet that has been created for the glory of my Father, and I am going to rule and reign with joy as a monarch, as the king over my people. And they're going to have great joy too. Amen. Because Christ made intercession requesting his mediatorial work of the Father, he shall be the high priest upon his throne. And there will be a great council of peace between both him as priest, as high priest, and as king, I'll read this. This is Zechariah 6.13. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. Who are we? The temple of the Lord. Amen. And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices, as both high, high priest and as king of a, of his inheritance that he will gather from the nations. But it is Christ who must ask, and he does. He prays, he intercedes to the Father on the behalf of his inheritance. And in his asking, he willingly puts himself into this voluntary state of humanity and humility and taking upon his human nature to fulfill this redemptive plan that the Father said, if you'll ask of me, and he does, I will fulfill this for you. Done deal. <laughs> Glory. And we are now a part of this. So it, it is in the glorifying of the Father, in a fullness 
of satisfaction to be granted by virtue of this prayer, this intercession, that through Christ's atoning sacrifice, that the Son, in asking for his very enemies to be his inheritance, that they may be where he is, while he himself rightly aims at his own honor, and we see this in John 17, he rightly and justly aims at his own honor and their happiness in himself, he also aims to the glory of the Father who granted this request, who granted this redemptive work. And there's no, there is this, as we see, this continuation of intercession now as we are high priests on this earth in his kingdom, he continues to intercede for the fulfillment of that inheritance being brought to him, being granted to him, being able to save us to the uttermost. John seventeen four to 5, it says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished, he hasn't been crucified yet, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do, it was a done deal in eternity past. He already foreknew it. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's what I was getting at in that previous comment. So through the intercession of Christ himself, we in the uttermost parts of the earth, those of every nation, tribe, and tongue, are now and will be his possession. No one can take, take us out of the Father's hand. We are in Christ with God, never to be stolen. So quickly, wow, I'm going to have to hold this till next time. Yep. In, individually, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which brother's going to get into next week. And collectively, we are that temple because Christ will... You know, and and the new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem will will be there with God. There will be no more sun. It will be the glory of God in, in His presence. Will be that temple. Any thoughts? I'm going to leave the prophetic intercession f- for Christ to next time, next week, because I've I've still got a little bit more introduction, and then we'll get into the first prayer. Yes, brother. He was praying for us before time began, knowing us before time began. When the Father put that request before him to ask of him, he had every one of his children in mind. Meditating on that is a good thing because that will draw our hearts out in prayer to him. If he interceded and sacrificed to that extent for the sake of our souls so that we could be with him and enjoy him forever, don't we have 10 minutes? Don't we have a half an hour? Don't we have the rest of the evening to be with him? You know, and, and I love, you're going to hear it. Paul, Paul and Christ never put directives to say, four o'clock every morning, at least an hour and a half. 
it's out of love. It, it's out of that being given the ability to respond to God that now we have that glorious conduit, if you will, through Christ to go before the throne of grace. And not just about ourselves, but to enjoy him and to, to, you know, to go through the directory of the church and pray for brothers and sisters to be able to take them before the throne of God is, is an incredible privilege. Because we know God and what he can do for us. And it's not about your best life now. We know that. <laughs> it's about what's yet to come. So thank you for your time. Let's go worship. Amen.